0: Welcome to Cypher Vision and today's episode, The Patent Market. I'm Nigel Schweitzer and joined by co-host Francesca Lavoie. Hi, Frankie.
1: How are you, Nigel, today?
0: I'm pretty good. All the threes, season three, episode three. And to get us started, today's guest is Kent Richardson, CEO of Richardson Oliver Insights. Pleasure to have you with us, Kent. Thank you. Looking forward to the conversation
1: today. Thank you for joining us today to talk about the patent market. We can kick off with you telling us a little bit about Richardson-Oliver and your background and how you came to know so much about the patent market.
2: So I was a computer engineer, went to law school, was a patent attorney. One of my clients was going public. They asked me to become the general counsel. Was in-house there for a while and then through various ways ended up setting up a law firm focused on patent strategy. It was Web 2.0 and there was a bunch of unicorns coming up And a lot of them didn't have a big enough patent portfolio or the right patent portfolio because they grew so fast. So they needed to go and supplement their portfolio. And intellectual ventures had created a new market. And that new market was buying and selling patents. Now, as part of your overall strategy, instead of always having to make your own patents, you can buy patents.
1: So, Kent, maybe to take a step back, and I'm going back to my economics degree around markets where I'm thinking about like a fruit seller, you suddenly don't have as many apples one day, so the price goes up because the demand's still the same. It seems to me that the pattern market is nothing like a rational economic marketplace that you might learn at school. Could we maybe start with who are the sellers in the pattern market? Why are they there?
2: That's a great question. I think it's rational. I think it's somewhat orthogonal to other markets. The folks who find themselves selling are the following, usually inventors who have no other monetization path. So so these are individuals or very small companies that really haven't been able to productize what they've come up with. Universities, operating companies, there's a few NPEs. But if you look at the line share, it's the operating companies and it's con- pretty consistently the operating companies are the ones that are selling. And they're selling for all kinds of reasons. One, they're selling to maybe balance out their portfolio. They have too much of something and the maintenance costs get pretty high. Two, they might be selling, frankly, to do something called privateering, which is to put pressure typically on a competitor. So they'll sell to an NPE with the Expectation that NPE will go and harass their competitor. They may be not only just balancing, but they might really be struggling. And so they have no options but to sell their portfolio. And where where you can really see the data, we published a paper on where intellectual ventures got all their assets. So this is a pretty interesting case study. They got two-thirds of their assets from around 30 companies, 40 companies. And if you thought about it, if you had cross licenses with that subset of those companies that you directly had competitive risk with, if you had cross licenses with about 15 companies there, you could have had a license to two-thirds of everything in the intellectual ventures portfolio that you cared about. So operating companies actually do supply a large percentage of it, of the assets on the street, and a few proactive cross licenses or license-on-transfer type of deals can substantially lower your risk. And we have the data to show that. And that's one of the things that's interesting about this market. How would you otherwise be able to show this to your CFO to say, hey, look, we need to invest in getting these kind of deals done?
0: You've made a couple of references to intellectual ventures, and there may be some who are listening to this podcast who don't have the history around intellectual ventures. But at one time, they were the Almost complete answer as to who's buying. They went around as a non-practicing entity with a, a huge uh, fund that they'd established to buy almost a hundred thousand patents. That phenomenon doesn't exist anymore because they've wound down that side of the business. But who um, is the buyer community now?
2: It is operating companies and. NPEs, so non-practicing entities, and it's a little bit of every year whether the NPEs are gonna buy more than operating companies as a percentage of the market. So just depends on what year it is, but those are the 80% of the purchases. Then you have um, some corner cases, law firms, uh, some universities buying back, vendors buy things back. Defensive aggregators also are part of that, and they're anywhere from 5% to 20% in any one year.
0: What you've just said there is that almost half the buying community is non-practicing entities. So I think probably Frankie's, like me, we're having flashbacks to Ken Seddon, the CEO of Lot Network, who was on the podcast, and he was talking about circular firing squads and self-inflicted harm. To what extent do you want to reflect on? And maybe or maybe as a data guy, you're just neutral on this.
2: We show this and we show where these assets come from because it's all public information. And it's a lot of operating companies are selling to NPEs. There's no two ways about it. Ultimately, and what you've sort of touched on here, these are the most dangerous assets in the world. The ones that are just open, available for people to go buy on the open markets right? These are really dangerous assets. The probability that somebody will sue on anything that hits the open market is around 12%. The probability that somebody sues on something that has been bought is around 45%, 35%. If it's an NPE, it's 50% chance that they will sue on something in that package now let's just talk about the random patents out of the all the patents that are currently available in the world what's the chance that somebody actually sues on that we're talking one in ten thousand would be my general ballpark so we're talking assets that have thousands of times more likely to be sued on these are really dangerous assets
1: And then you're saying that roughly each year, 50% of these assets are being acquired by MPEs and that they have that danger element to them that has to pose a big concern for operating companies.
2: There's a case study that we uh, wrote about LinkedIn building their portfolio by buying things on the open market. And that's one typical reason why companies buy. But another one is the example of Facebook and BlackBerry. BlackBerry sued Facebook Facebook countersued all the assets that were used in that countersuit were bought by Facebook. Now, Allen was part of the team that ended up getting the Motorola portfolio when he was at Google to de-risk Google's exposure to some of the mobile patents that are out there. And Allen's actually bought patents when he was at Juniper to countersuit. So people are actually going and buying these things. So it's not just NPEs that are using them. Operating companies are using them to counter-sue and or counter-assert. There's lots of negotiations that go on behind closed doors. We actually help our clients prepare for those negotiations by helping them buy patents and put them in a format that they can go and counter-assert them behind closed doors. So these assets are being used pretty regularly.
1: And. Just to give this discussion a slant around geography, is this global? Is this specific to different um, sectors? H- how, how do you see the market developing?
2: It's mostly tech, but it's definitely broadening out. We're seeing it in automotive, manufacturing, consumer products. It's definitely, uh, I'd say still 80% of it is in high tech, but other people are, are moving out. On a geographic basis, The majority is US focused, but with the change of the court system in Europe uh, for patents, I think looks really interesting. It has a US majority fingerprint with more and more interest internationally.
1: What you've brought to the patent market is transparency around actually what should you be paying, even whether an asset is still on the market or not, as you discussed. You've obviously used a lot of data and you've collected a lot of data to do that.
2: So we had to create a lot of data management and scraping tools to track what's going on in this market. We are able to at least scrape the U.S. patent assignment database and pull down information about the assignments and solve that problem. As a result of that, we have a big data set. Now we were at 17,000 packages that we track. These are deals that people have offered for sale and it's about 250,000 patent assets. So that's issued patents, applications, all around the world.
1: That data set is also what allows you to, first, help your clients, but also you're about to issue your latest report on the patent market, is that right?
2: That's correct. 11 years ago, I sent a note to Joff Wild, who was the editor, and I said, we have this crazy number of patent deals that I think we could create some transparency to this really opaque marketplace. He was happy to have us do this report. So we published this first report about this opaque market of patents. We started to publish things like, what's the typical price? How many packages come on the market? How long are they on the market? What's the average size of one of these things? And to give you some context of how important this was, it is not that our pricing is the perfect answer. It is that there was no information about pricing. So a really good example of that is for one of my clients, the CEO of another company came in and said, Hey, would you like to buy our patents? Now it was in a technology space that the client would have been interested in buying. He said, what price? He said $33 million. And I said, well, We're not going to pay you $33 million these. that's just not going to work. Why don't you take a look at the market report and then get back to me? I don't want you to necessarily bid against yourself here, but that number is way off the mark for what you have to offer. He came back and he goes, well, we used your market report, plugged in the numbers. How about $350,000? And that's how big of a problem it was. We use that market report as a place that people can go and say, well, we're asking 10 times as much as what everybody else asks. Is there a reason for that? Or this person offered me one tenth of what I think this looks like. What's the reason for that? It at least gives people some basis for this. What's happened over that 11 years of us reporting on this market is it's now at a point where you can find pricing for buying and selling, but also we have economists using the data at universities to publish papers on invention and you know what's going on in the general market for patents. It's been an interesting ride.
0: And just because I know the listeners will be leaning in saying, well, that's like six mentions of a report and 11 years worth of data. You've kindly offered to make this report available and on the website for Cypher Vision, you will be able to download it. But for those people who don't want to read but want to listen, Kent, is there any kind of high-level summary you can provide of this year's report?
2: There's some bad news and interesting news. The bad news is pricing is dropping for patents. That's not great news for patent holders, patent creators. Other news that I think is really interesting, we looked at brokers. And Brokers as part of this community are really important, but it's a really small group of people. Maybe 40-ish companies in the world are brokers. And so we looked at all the closed deals, what percentage of those are represented by brokers? It's 90%. And that's amazing. We knew that brokers were important. We didn't realize they were that important. This is surprising for us, even after all this time, we look at this data and we slice it and we ask new questions.
0: The one thing I thought you might reference is falling price, any kind of numbers on where it was, where it is, and I guess just to hark back to another Cypher Vision guest, Jay Yonamine, anything you'd say about the spread?
2: I think one of the things that's really important before we get too deep into price is that these are asking prices. So if you look at the median asking price of an asset in 2022, it was about 100K per asset. And the previous couple of years, it's been around 150K.
1: That was one of the things when we talked about with Jay that Nigel just referenced, obviously the average is so ginormously wide, it probably doesn't make any sense at all. So that's why you're looking at median
2: it's actually more complicated and more interest it's so detailed and what happens is the shape of the curves they look like a roller coaster it sort of goes up and then it's all this long run out and the prices can go quite high per asset so averages don't really work very well because people when they think of averages they usually think of a nice bell-shaped curve and these are not bell-shaped curves and averages sort of really skew the numbers Medians have other problems, but at least it, we think it's a better representation. And we can see that median pricing drop. That's bad. I think the other thing that's important, though, is the price of assets that actually sell tends to be a little bit more stable and a little more consistent. So we'll see more variation in asking prices than in sales prices. So I think that's an interesting part of this is that The people who know how to price their assets to sell actually do better and they do it more consistently.
1: How important do you think it is for organizations to actually be using analytics and data to inform their IP strategy? There are other platforms out there like Cypher that will help that. What would be your message to them?
2: That's a great question. So when I was in-house, I had a team, wasn't a huge team, but I had a decent-sized team of programmers. We were creating our own databases to manage a lot of the the work and also to roll up some of the analytics. What's happened is you don't have to have that team anymore. You don't have to have a separate programming team to get high-level, important analytics to drive decision-making. And Cypher is one of those parts of the tools. We're a big fan of Cypher. What we can do now is show you things like, here's all the competitors in your space who've bought patents lately. Here's the technology areas. And in fact, we use the cipher classifiers to help people understand where assets are moving around and who might in their space be buying stuff. Uh, One of the examples that's pretty interesting, you can usually see where Apple's going based on what they're buying. So they will go buy patents in those spaces where they probably didn't feel like they filed enough patents you can see strategy out of this. You can see other people's strategy. You can see if you have greater risk. And and one of the things that we do by pulling in data from things like the Cypher platform and financial information and even LinkedIn, you can start to create a better risk profile for your company. What's our overall risk? And I'll give you an example of that. We'll go and say, hey, here's your top 10 patent holders in the space. How many of these do you really care about? Well, actually, it turns out usually only three or four of them because some uh, you have good business relationships with or you've already got a license with them or whatever. So there might be three or four. So you go into the the CFO's office and say, hey, look, here's our risk. Here's what we're doing to create patents to counter sort against them if that ever comes about. And that CFO might look through that list and go, "Okay, well, I understand where we're going. And she might say, well, but hang on a sec. This one that you've got marked here is friendly and you're not doing anything about We're not gonna be buying from them in two years. That's our expectation. Okay, well that's really important to know. Now all of a sudden the patent team can say, hey, we better go and look through our portfolio, find out what we have to use against that company because they're probably gonna be really upset with us in two years. And that's what you can do with analytics. That's what you can do with the data. When you pull the data together from different sources, now you can start to get a better risk picture for your company. and. Buying and selling patents is just part of that analysis and also part of the solution.
1: Great. Thank you. We've talked a little bit about this already in terms of what the future might hold for the patent market. But what else do you think is going to happen in the future?
2: Well, I just did a survey of some of the biggest buyers. So everybody was less optimistic than they were two years ago. Two years ago, everybody thought the market would expand or stay the same. This year, 30% of the people thought the market would contract. 70% of the people surveyed thought it would stay the same or increase. So it's not like everybody said, oh, well, the market's going to tank. But it's definitely a shift in sentiment on how this market looks like it's going to go over the next couple of years. And I think that's reasonable with the layoffs that we're seeing in Silicon Valley and the pullback on budget. It's, it means that some of people won't have the resources to go buy what they would have liked to buy. And we also know that when these budgets get pulled back, people start looking at other folks who are infringing and pointing fingers and trying to get their pound to flash. I've been in Silicon Valley for nearly 30 years. It is creative destruction in all kinds of different
0: ways. Well. Kent, I have the pleasure of asking you for your cipher vision, your key takeaway from this discussion that you want listeners to embrace.
2: The patent market is a solution to a set of problems for you that you may not have been aware. You can go buy things instead of have to make it. And I think that's really important for people to understand, just that it exists.
0: There's no doubt that there's an active market in the buying and selling of patents, but it's still small. We're talking about 2,000 transactions in a world of over 3.5 million active US patents, and a lot more if you look at the global landscape. What Richardson Oliver has achieved, however, is significant. Kent has aggregated and analyzed the hard-to-find data, not as a way to value companies or even portfolios, but to facilitate transactions between those who want to buy and those who want to sell. What's more difficult to rationalize is whether this market is increasing risk by putting patents into the hands of NPEs or decreasing risk by allowing companies such as LinkedIn to bolster their portfolio much more quickly than homegrown inventions alone. Whichever side of the telescope you take, it's hard not to be grateful to Kent for shining a light on what's going on. Thank you, Kent, for the conversation.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the CypherVision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag CypherVision and share your thoughts about today's episode on the patent market.